Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. I welcome to our program by way of Perth, Australia, author Lawrence Perry. Her important book is titled Great Grandma's Guidelines to Prevent Childhood Accidents. Greetings, Florence. Thank you for joining us at 1 a.m. Australia time. Hello. Tell me about this book. Now, I'm, a, I'm an overly protective parent. Is your book going to give me tools to help me become a better, more effective parent, or is it going to make me even more concerned about the dangers out there? Or would it be better described as a how-to book on how to keep your children safe? It's really to make sure that you know what to expect at certain stages of the child's development. And it's the, the purpose of the book really is to bring about a general community awareness of already known contributing factors and the precautions that can be taken to prevent the constant reoccurrence of the predictable childhood accidents at specific stages of the growth and development. And this is the type of thing that a lot of people or parents, when they used to come to me and they'd had, you know, the child had had an accident, they would come to me and they'd say, can't you tell people about this because we didn't know? And this is the type of thing that I want to get over to people in the fact that most of the accidents have happened, well, what would you say, the, the actual child uh, development doesn't change, but of course the environment does. And the things that lead to a child's accident just never changes. It's, it's, you know, it's behavior and the way it develops. Are accidents something that happen typically in the life of most children? All children you know, learn about the world around them by you know, just touching and tasting. And, of course, as they get a little bit older, what happens is they... <coughs> excuse me, look. Um, what you've got is the children grow older, they develop more curiosity for the world around them. They become more mobile and independent and develop the skills which will enable them to reach or touch or crawl. And these are the type of things you've got to know what to keep out of, the, you know, keep things out of the way of small children, say, particularly at the hand-to-mouth stage of development. Uh, don't forget that many products only become dangerous when they get into the wrong hands, especially to the hands of toddlers, especially at the, at the hand-to-mouth stage of development. People have got to learn to not leave small things about, such as tablets or anything, anything small that can go into a baby's mouth because they can choke on them, that type of thing. There's lots of things that are just what you would call simple things, and yet they can lead to quite awful accidents to children. You have 283 pages of instruction and caution in here. What is yes. the number one thing that you want to get across to grandparents and to parents about children? What I want them to know, really, is that there's lots of things being done for donkey's years, and yet accidents are just like history repeating themselves. Um, it's the same accidents. What I was doing in 1975, 
uh, what I was teaching, shall I say, or preaching in 1975 is exactly the same now. The only thing that is different is the environment. And although you know that both adults or a child's human behavior contributes towards the accidents, the emphasis on the human behavior should not be allowed to cloud the issue of faulty design. And although education may produce some effective results, it should never be used to the exclusion of a more effective remedy which could be rectified at design or manufacturer's level. And an example of that is, um, how can you put the children now uh, falling from balconies? I've got a picture Mm -hmm. in my book in 1975 of a child climbing and falling off a balcony and they're still doing it. And you've got... Now you've got this business of uh, flat panel TVs tipping over and co- you know causing terrible accidents, and that's up worldwide with anybody who's got these flat TVs in their home. You know, there's you know there's a lot of things to, from design, even from what you would call examples of wearing clothes can cause an accident. For instance, if you've got a child who is wearing a hoodie, when they turn their head round to say see if there's any traffic coming on the road, the side of the hoodie actually restricts their view so they can sometimes step out into a road and they've not seen the car coming because the hoodie has actually hidden their view. You know, there's lots of things like that that you've got to be very careful of. What motivated you to put this book together? Well, I'm 84 now. Mm. And what I found was when I read the paper and see the same old accidents happening time and time and time again, I just said, I'm just going to get everything into a book and put it there so people can find out and know all the things that they should know. Because quite a lot of things, it's very sad when people always say, you know, after they've had an accident, oh, gee, you know, if only I'd known. I'd never knew that, you know, that type of thing. So I've put all what I know, there's most probably a lot more than what I know, but I've put what I know into the book to pass on the knowledge, hopefully to parents, so that, well, we can reduce the awful accidents that happen to some children. Don't forget that some of the children, when they do have an accident, then they could be handicapped for the rest of their lives. You know, it's just quite sad. This book has some very cautionary information in it. Who do you think it would appeal to and why? I think it would appeal to any home that has got children that live in the home or visit, like if they visit to grandma's home or visit to friend's home where they haven't got, well, they've not got children, so they haven't got things put away that should be put away. And quite a lot of accidents occur when they actually go and visit other people's homes. Not intentionally, none of them are intentional, they're just sad accidents that happen. But if you know before, you know, what can happen and predictable, then you can do something about it. What, what you've got to say is that, you know, that it's, an, it's not just what you would say, um, children that get, you know, all accidents happen in the home. It's just that the under-14s, or the under-4s mainly, the most vulnerable of the children age, between under the age of four years and then of course the next vulnerable um, people are the elderly and it's the same type of thing well the young child is learning about their you know how to control and how to get the stability and all the rest of it the elderly are losing it and this is where you've got housing that really isn't always 
uh, constructed to well to be safe for children or the elderly. How did you come up with all of the d- uh, different things in I your book? I was the executive officer of the Home Safety Division of the National Safety Council of WA for 10 years. And then I also did my own, what you call, private thing, as what we call HAPPY. That was Home Accident Prevention Initiatives, where I used to go and give talks to all the you know, schools and nursing and teachers and get to people as far as possible who was always meeting people, and especially young mothers. And how long did it take you to put this together? Oh, I would say about two years. Two years of, of, of pretty intense work, then. And, and what one thing would you like readers to take away from this this book that you've written? I would, I would just like them to, to, to take away everything they can learn about it, because there's something in there for everybody in the different, different categories of accidents. And also, I would like them to pass it on to as many people as they can so that we can reduce the number of accidents because in Australia alone approximately 250 Australian children under the age of 14 are killed and 58,000 are hospitalized as a result of an accidental injury but they are the serious ones because injured children treated as outpatients or by their family doctor are not included in these statistics the hospitalized ones are the more serious accidents you know, where the child can be either, well, can either be physically or mentally handicapped as a result of the accident. Are there other books in the marketplace that are as direct and succinct as your book? I don't think there's as many got everything, what I call, as um, what compiled. Uh, you get little bits here and there, and they say, you know, they tell you one little thing. I've put everything that I can think of in there, you know, that, so that people know about it, because there's so many things that people have never heard of. Uh, were there any challenging parts to putting this book together? No, not really. I've, I've, I just was, what, what, everything I, I just said that everything that I'd learned I shall put into the book, and I got um, what you would call permission from other um, professional people to put their their um, information that's on the bushfires and also will cigarette um that's the will cigarette people gave me permission to put in the 1934 um 1934 cigarette card in for safety first road safety type of thing and this is really to illustrate that the child's growth and de- behavior does not change it's the environment that changes and as long as you can recognize potential hazards that happen to children at a certain stage of development, then a lot can be done to you know, prevent a lot of the accidents. Florence, I understand in your book that you have an extensive list of poisons and plants that we need to avoid as well. That's right. There's a list of, um, you know, quite a lot of people don't realize that you, the pollen from plants, especially if you've got children what you call in a pram underneath a bush, say, just for instance, the angel's trumpet, that's quite poisonous. And you can, you know, unconsciously not know that a child can be, you know, kind of in a pram underneath and the pollen falls onto him and he licks it or whatever. Or on the top of that, maybe a blossom can fall onto the pram and he picks it up and starts putting it into his mouth. And um, angel's trumpet can be pretty... Pretty ghastly. You can actually die from it. 
So there's quite a lot of, there's a whole list of, of poisonous plants in there, plus other poisons, and also what you call invisible hazards, people, things that you don't, you know, you don't see or don't hear, but it's, you know, it's there, like uh, carbon monoxide and all that type of thing. You what? know, there's all kind of asbestos and lead poisoning, all that type of thing. Very important. Important information. Thank you so much for doing the research and sharing this information. Okay, thanks ever so much. Well, this is an important read. The title again is Great Grandma's Guidelines <laughs> to Prevent Childhood grandma. Accidents. Thank you, Florence, for joining us today. Thank you. Florence, where can we get copies of your book? The loads of them on the, on the website, but the actual people who've, who've, who've done the publishing is Ex Libris. Ex Libris Corporation... I think it is www.exlibris.com.au and that's where you can get in copies from the book. And what you've got is a hard cover and you've got a soft cover and also an e-book. Thank you, Florence. Our author again is Florence Perry. The title of the book, Great Grandma's Guidelines to Prevent Childhood Accidents. Thank you, Florence, for joining us today. Well, thank you very much. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Light at the End of the Closet, 
And the author is James Cavanaugh, and James joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, James. Hello there. How are you? Well, great to have you with us. Uh, this is a controversial book. Let me read what you have written about your book, The Light at the End of the Closet, you say is a chronicle of James Cavanaugh's realization, your realization and acceptance of being a gay man while raising a family and learning how to live. And you'll go on to say it gives hope, not condemnation. It accomplishes this with raw, uncensored truth and honesty. And I guess that's the main key here, isn't it? Honesty. It is. It is, Steve. Um, it takes a while to become uh, aware sometimes of what's actually true and not true. And it takes a while for you to accept it and, and then move forward with that truth. Now, you were married for 13 years. You got divorced in 1983. You have three children. But let's go back. Let's go back to those early years. How early did you have some confusion, some confused feelings? I think I was probably... 12, 11, 12, 13 years old at that time. When I first started feeling those feelings inside, I was just starting, um, you know, junior high school. And, and my high, junior high school was combined with a senior high, so there were more mature um, boys in my classes sometimes. And so I, I think I started realizing it then. And, of course, we're talking at a time where this was not at all acceptable behavior. No, and, and I remember now, uh, thinking back, I used to go to the library and I used to browse secretly the card catalog, if you can imagine, and trying to find truth and trying to find answers to why I felt this way. And I felt really like a freak um, and couldn't ask anybody about it. Did your parents know at that time? I No, I don't think so. Um, I think my mother might have suspected, you know, I wasn't... Um, I was, a, I was a really quiet kid and uh, never in any trouble usually and pretty, pretty shy. I was very shy, actually, back in those days. Um, not so much anymore. But um, So you kept pushing off these feelings, pushing away these feelings, thinking that, uh, you know, if you could get married and raise children, everything would be okay. Well, I grew up in a, in a very um, church-oriented youth group, and I met my wife. We actually met when we were eight years old, and we became just the best, closest friends from that age on, and we were always together, and um, we got married when we were uh, teenagers. We were 18 years old, and I thought, you know, growing up in that context and my, I could feel now, looking back, my mother nudging me to get married, even at that young age, because I think she suspected I was not going to follow through with this in my life later. So um, I can remember that. And, and I did, and, and, I, and I wanted to kind of share these things with my fiancé at the time, and I tried to. It's in the book about this, but I tried to. And I just thought, I'll get, we'll get married, we'll raise a family, and this will take care of this. And that was a common common belief, I think, with the men that I meet nowadays at this, in my age bracket. That was a common feeling, I think. So you get married and obviously start a life together, a career. You're very involved, both of you, in your church. We, we were. Um, 
I had been uh, the organist in a very conservative church for nine years, and I was a deacon in this church, and my wife was the, the choir director at the same church. So we were very, very visible. It was a very conservative church. And um, that's when, um, about the you know 10th year of my marriage, I was just really struggling with this this life I had in the in the secret part of my life, and I couldn't hide it anymore. I couldn't I couldn't push it back down into that dark space any longer. And I I started acting out, you know, in, in secret, but I started acting out, and it was causing a lot of difficulty in my marriage. And it got to the the point where I was hurting the person I loved so much, and that was my wife. And I was neglecting my time with my children because I was leading an entirely different life on the outside of my regular, you know, visible life. I was leading two so, lives. Yeah, I was. that's what I was going to say. So you're trying to live two lives, obviously. It's challenging enough just to live one life. It, it, it was. And it finally came to a, 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 a head um, at this point in my life where I just couldn't do it anymore. My... My uh, wife was blaming all these other things that she thought it was her fault that we had become non-sexual anymore. And I was, and quite frankly, I was having gay sex all the time. And, and I hated being that person. But because I was suppressing these feelings, I felt like I had no other choice at that time. And um, it, was, it was very, very difficult. She... she um, couldn't understand, of course. And I, I came out to her, and uh, the church immediately got involved, and, and uh, they wanted to, to make sure that I changed, and they wanted to make sure that I became straight. So they, they asked me, kind of in a direct way, to, to seek counseling, which I did with my wife, to try to, to be straight. And I tried to. Mm -hmm didn't work but uh and i knew i deep down i knew it wasn't going to work but i needed some kind of normalcy in in my life with these three young children and a wife that i love and and i, I tried it but it just couldn't work it was impossible to do and so when after those months of going through counseling and i got some really really odd strange advice uh from the counselors about going straight um I, I just came out and I said, I can't do it. I cannot do this. And, and that came after a suicide attempt. That was the, the, um, the, the defining moment is when I went through that. I couldn't do this anymore to myself and my, my wife and my children. And so I, I stood up to the church and I said, I can't do it. And so they... It was a difficult time. There wasn't any anybody or any television program or anything that you could look at in those days to um, to compare or to to use as a as a guide. There was wasn't. What year? What year are we talking about? What We're year? talking about um, 1982 or three. It was it was okay. in the early 80s when this took place, mm -hmm. and I um, the church started proceedings to excommunicate me that was what they said they were going to do and they did and i went and met before them twice or three times they had like a real trial it was like going to court 
it was you stood there before them you stood there before the elders and your pastor and you just had to stand before them in kind of a tribunal kind of a setting it was it was exactly yes it was exactly like that and and what made it oh not okay it wasn't okay to me it's not okay but what made it uh, understandable was i really believed and i had known these people for many years and and i believed that they they believed that they were doing the right thing mm-hmm. um so we went through that that process and and at that same time my divorce was going through and at the same time of my life i had met someone who was also married we had been seeing each other uh, on the side for two years while all of this confusion stuff was going on. And he had four children, about the same age as my children at the time. And when my divorce, you know, even before that, and after I was excommunicated, I, of course, was separated from my wife. We were moved together, he and I, and we were together for 12 years. So all through my children's growing up years and up and up and through college, we were he and I were together, and uh, it was it was unknown territory for the two of us. We didn't have any other friends that we knew of that were gay fathers that were involved with their children. I knew men that were gay, but they had kind of abandoned their children, or they didn't, you know, they, they didn't they were not involved. I knew a few of them, but but not at the level that we were. And the kind of funny thing, Steve, is is once I came out, I had so much more time for my children because I wasn't leading this horrible, really crazy life anymore. And things really, as far as the kids went, started to settle down. And we had some kind of normalcy, if if I can call it that. And we became very close. My children and I are very close to this day. Very close. So you had some one-on-one time with them uh, to help them understand? That must have been a very... uh... I can't even imagine that process. You have to understand that my wife at that time was extremely angry with me. We're friends now. But at that time, she considered it because the church believed it, that it was a choice. And so she had the same mindset as if I had run off with an 18-year-old girl. Right. That was her feeling about it. So, of course, she was bitter and she was angry, and it was hard for her to not let those feelings go over into the children's lives. There's a really horrible event in my book about that scene that happened. And so after this, all of this settled down and after the divorce and after my wife moved forward with my partner, then I was on a regular schedule of visitation. We had joint custody of the children. And, and so I made sure that all the time that I had with them was all about them. It was not about anything else. And, um, did, and they, so, did they accept you right away? Did they, how did they handle it? They did. Um, it seemed like they did. Uh, now, my son went through some really angry periods when he was a teenager, and he blamed a lot of his emotional problem through the 14, 13, 14, 15 years age on my being gay. Um, we went through some difficult times. This is all in the book. I was very open about all of that too. Uh, it was difficult time. <laughs> um, my, I have two, two girls and a son and it wasn't that way so much with my, my daughters, but for him, it was, it was a difficult time. 
having a gay father. And are any of those three, have they uh, come out of a closet or, you know, are they uh, heterosexual? They're, they're all straight. Um, my son is actually uh, this weekend getting married. We're going to, my, my partner and I are going to go down and, and be in his wedding this weekend. Mm. Um, but, so you uh, see your wife? Do you see your former wife very often? I, well, not since I moved to North Carolina. They all live in Florida, but when, when I did live in Florida, which was a year and a half ago, I moved here a year and a half ago, um, it was common that, that my partner and I would, would be at her house for dinner with, you know, her hmm. husband, which I never thought in a million years back when I was coming out that that would ever happen, ever, on any, any planet would that ever happen to me. I'm very fortunate. Um, so the bottom line, the bottom line from your point of view, I'm reading some statements by you. You can close off this uh, discussion with uh, just further uh, feelings about these statements. The cost of living a lie exacts a heavy price, so be true to yourself. Absolutely. I, now, I, I am the first one to tell anyone that coming out of the closet, if you're gay and, and closeted, is the only way to go. I do not believe that. It was the way I needed to come out. And, and, but I wrote the book for people that are considering that and they're listening to others about what's going to happen, what terrible things can happen, what their, perhaps their children will leave them. And, 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 and I know that happens, but I wanted to write a book to, to show that it's, it's not always that way. But I do not believe that that's the only way. There's so many different paths in life that people choose to take or not. But this is not the only way. I, it was the way for me. And the closet is a lonely place to live. It is. And it's not friendly. And uh, uh, it's dark. And it gets crowded with all the lies. And maintaining that life is, is so demanding. It's so exhausting, and it, and you can't you can't have any uh, as good of a quality of a life trying to keep two lives going. You just it's just impossible to do it. We've been listening to James Cavanaugh. He's the author of his book, The Light at the End of the Closet. James, tell us how to get your book. You can order it on Amazon.com and Barnes and Noble. It's available in paperback or uh, an ebook or also from the publisher, uh, exlibris.com. Thank you so much, James, for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you so much. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown, and after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 success stories from successful entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, 
Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book is An Immigrant's Quest. Our author is Joseph Depressed. Joseph, welcome to the program. Thank you. Joe, tell me about your book. Is this an autobiographical tale? Yes, it is. And what is the background? Why did you decide to write this? Well, basically, I started about 18 years ago uh, after the birth of my first grandchild. Uh, my daughter-in-law, having heard some of the adventures and stories of my past, uh, actually, she bought a video camera and kept asking, you know, if I wanted to tell the story on, on you know, on, on a camera. So I thought it was crazy, nuts or so. But, uh, you know, so she could relate some of the stories to her children later on. And, uh, well, I, of course, I turned it down. I'm, I wasn't going to sit on some chair just, you know, talking to some dumb camera. So she continued. She said, well, write it then. Write it, write it then, she said. Well, I'll think about it, I said to her. And well, a couple of years passed, and, and uh, I didn't think myself capable because I, I, you know, I, didn't, I didn't do enough schooling. And uh, so she you know, I started, little by little I started for more, it's a few years past, but she persisted, and one day I started thinking perhaps I shouldn't, you know, she won't forgive me, and uh, if I didn't try, so that's well how it began, and I ended up enjoying it, really actually quite well, uh, through the years I've learned to take some flack from my wife for being always and forever busy uh, with my writing. Uh, but when I finished my first book and she read it, she did forgive me. I also realized that perhaps it was my calling in life to write. This is not your first book then, is it? No, it isn't. It's a sequel, actually, to the first one. And the bur- first book was titled Boys Don't Cry. Yeah, that's right. And uh, th- that was written during the war. And uh, the, we were children then. And the reason I called my book that in the time was... Uh, my, we were a family of 12, actually, and there were four girls and six boys. And my father would say when the silence would come on or the bombs would start falling or anything like that, my father would say, I do not want your boys crying, you know, not in front of the girls, So it was, which was a very hard thing to do. We had to hide in the basement someplace, cry and clean our tears quickly. And then come up and show a brave face to the girls, and that's why basically I called it that. And your life began in Belgium. In Belgium, yes. In uh, I was born in 1936, and I, you know, I basically lived through the war as a child. And we saw, you know, I, I, I've written that and done in a story. And uh, publicist actually decided only after I wrote my second book to you know, put it on, you know, to talk about it more, because, you know, being being a person that writes a second book means more like you're an author, you know, so All right. uh, that's basically why we're just talking about the second book, really. 
Your emigration was to Canada to begin with at 17 years of age. And yes, was I was 17, and uh, uh, that's where uh, we, we came into, we landed into in Quebec City in, in April in 1954. Well, and that's where first... <laughs> realized what what my name really meant down here when I when I would say uh, you know when the immigration person came aboard and he, he would ask me who are you I said I'm depressed and he would say well, listen young fella I'm just work for the immigration department <laughs> you know you, uh, I can't help you I can understand that you are depressed but I didn't know what he was talking about at the time but it, uh, and that's because of the unique last name that you have that's spelled D. Exactly. Like my sister taught us, my older sister taught us that the letter E was uh, spelled like in Belgium. The letter E is spelled ah. They say depressed, but in English they say depressed. So we, I, I pressed on the E when I told them. There's been a few jokes made about the name. Mm-hmm. I have a son that is a doctor in Louisville. And he calls himself depraved instead of depressed because he didn't like hearing the uh, depressed over the, uh, you know, over the the, the intercom. Like, you know, people call him Dr. Depressed. Well, for someone who was reluctant to begin telling their story, you've managed to put together almost over 500 pages. What is the important aspect of this book that you want to convey to, to the reader? Well, I, I talk to talk about determination and never giving up. It was so often that, you know, I felt like giving up, I, especially I, when I first was in Canada, I got, you know, by accident uh, picked up and put in jail for three weeks. And, of course, after, before they found somebody to interpret and explain, you know, I couldn't speak English. Like, I, had, I knew a few words. But before they could find an interpreter, I, I was in there for three weeks. And then finally, of course, they found it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't guilty. We had just been caught in a snowstorm, and we were hiding in a, uh, in a cottage on the, on the uh, shores of Lake Huron. And we, we got, you know, thrown in jail, but people, you know, thought, well, send them back, they would say, you know, in the, the, the town where we lived in Stratroy at the time, because they, you know, they know good, you know, like once you've been to jail, everybody remembers, they don't remember that you, you know, that you weren't guilty, and so anyway, I, that that made me go out west, so I went out west and done all these experiences, I worked at the farm, and I worked in the lumber camps, and I, I worked, we, we got to some, you know, we had to do some firefighting, and after a couple of years, I got homesick, and I came back home, and my father, for some reason, couldn't forgive me, so I went east, and uh, then I started working on the on the boats in the, on the St. Lawrence, and then across the ocean, and I became a sailor at that time. So I'm talking about all these experiences, basically, on my in my book, and like so many people had told me, you have to write this down, all this stuff that you've done, because, you know, there's not many people that do so many different things in their life. Would you would you call your book a coming of age book uh, related to immigration to a foreign country and uh, growing up? Yeah, I would. Too. Yeah, I would. It, uh, it it uh, it it is a struggle, like to to learn the language, and you know, like it uh, it it is also uh, 
like it took me basically 15 years to write these two books. I could have done this probably in in half that time if I had you know had had a good education. And I would like to tell young people that it's how important education really is. I I was unfortunate. I had to start working at 14, and uh, because that's the you know that's the way it was. We were very poor in Belgium, and uh, that's so I didn't have a chance. I wanted to keep going to school, but I didn't have a chance. So we. Uh, You've obviously made up for lost time with this book. Tell me well, about the chapter Queenie. What is I that tried, about? Like I said, it took me a long time. I could have done it half that time if I had the education. Tell us about the chapter titled Queenie. Oh, well, it. Uh, uh, when I first started working on the farm, what I had a hard time with was uh, all the, the colloquialism, you know, the, the, all these words what they, I didn't realize. Stories were, were told about, about horses, like, you know... Uh, get off his high horse or, he, you know, all the different things about horses. But I had I had no experience with horses at all. And I, I had to, I started working on the farm. And they, uh, of course, I, you know, I didn't want to tell the farmer because I was happy to get get a job. But I really didn't know much about, about farming. But I, I struggled through it. And then one day they thought I knew everything about farming and about horses. So, they, they they told me to go dress the horse. Now I didn't really know what they meant by that, and they they uh, they uh, you know. So I thought automatically. I thought dressing a horse. I, I remember in in the in the stories from the past, you know, in the Middle Ages, how they dressed these horses up and all that. So I was looking for for that stuff, and eventually I did find you know find out reluctantly. I did find out that what they meant was put the you know. Uh, all the strapping and all that on, but I had a real hard time with that. In the time also, Farmer, when I first started, uh, he, the, the previous hired hand was uh, was not a very good, you know, I guess he was not a very good one, and they, they said, he was telling me, uh, he said, oh, he's his best friend was uh, Johnny Walker or somebody, you know, and I... I hmm. You know, he needed that friend to to give him courage. So, you know, I, I imagine that friend lived nearby. <laughs> I wondered where Johnny Walker really lived, so he could give me courage to to build this. You know, to, to put this all together. But there was a girl in the neighborhood that you know I kind of had an eye on, and she did help me and showed me some of the stuff that I needed to do. Of all the adventures that you experienced after immigrating to Canada. Which one stands out as the most fun and enjoyable? Uh, I would say the most fun and enjoyable would be working in, in the British Columbia, northern British Columbia, on the boom. What is the logs on the water like, you know, working on the water? It, uh, it, you know, the, the, you have to sort these logs, like you, these logs float down, and you have to sort them and keep them, you know, keep them in line. And I, I, it took a while, like it took me about three weeks of continuously falling and rolling into the water and dangerously getting caught sometimes in between some logs. But eventually I did do it, and I, I really enjoyed it. I did enjoy that. It, uh, I, I ended up actually uh, with a better job there, and but... 
at the time my brothers had come to the to the logging camps too, and after a while they wanted to go back home, wanted to go back to Vancouver and then back home. But I had at that time I had been offered a really good job with uh, with the boat. I had my own boat and I could you know I had my own basically my own hours to work. So mm. I did uh, I did did that and I love nature very very much. And it's just so beautiful out there in the, you know, in the, in the mountains and in the, in, it, the, it. in the, like the only way to these camps was by, by air, like, you know, by, by water plane. This is an exciting adventure of perseverance and success. The fact that you are now a, a published author is a great testament to your perseverance and to your hard work. The title is An Immigrant's Quest. Our author is Joseph Depressed. Thank you, Joe, for joining us today. Where can we get copies of your book? Uh, at uh, Barnes & Noble and Amazon.com. And I don't know how many bookstores in the U.S., but in Canada we get it at uh, Chapters and at uh, Oxford Bookstore in our neighborhood here. Fabulous. Uh, now, you are still writing additional books, are you not? Well, I am, uh, I'm thinking of, of writing a third, a third one now. Well, I that's that I'm getting up there in age. I'm seventy-seven years old. Now. That's not old. This is this is a great a great book, a great adventure, and certainly has some uh, wonderful insight into the life of uh, assimilating your culture into the culture that you grow in that you that you join. Uh, again, the title is "An Immigrant's Quest." Our author, Joseph Depress. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.